Join me in your Bibles uh, by turning to Luke chapter 12, if you will. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have repaired, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking as we prepare to open your word that you would, in turn, open our hearts. God, that you would till up the ground of our hearts, that we might be prepared to hear and believe and obey. Lord, I ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified in the preaching of your word today. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can hear the theme of this passage just in the rhythm of the vocabulary that you find there, inheritance, goods, plenty, possessions, abundance, treasure, riches. And then you have the verb, around which all of these uh, words circulate, coveting. An incredibly uh, relevant, fitting, appropriate uh, passage for people like us living in a Western materialistic context. And yet, as we're going to see, not just today, but over the next couple of weeks, the problem that we are facing as believers is not our context. The problem is not the culture that we live in. The issue that we are dealing with as it pertains to things like money and possessions isn't living in a Western world. It's the attitude of our hearts. It's the orientation of the the inner man 
The issue is not that we live in a materialistic, consumeristic society, but where the treasure of our heart is found. And you can see that here uh, just in the way that this scene arises and that there is no background given. There's no connection at all to what Jesus has just been teaching about. Nothing that would prompt a question or trigger an idea. Just a man who out of the midst of these so many thousands of people, the Bible says, that are now gathered around Jesus, makes his way forward and he calls out and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And in just one sentence, out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks and out comes bubbling up all of his innermost desires, the things that he longs for. He wants Jesus to fix this squabble that he's having with his brother. Probably uh, this is his elder brother. The law required that the elder brother be Um, on board before the estate was going to be divided up. He typically functioned like the executor of the estate. And for whatever reason, this particular elder brother had refused to divide the property. In all likelihood, they're both there. They're both in this crowd because Jesus wants, or this man wants Jesus to tell his brother He says, tell my brother. And notice as he speaks to Christ that he doesn't inquire of the Lord. Uh, He doesn't ask Jesus. He doesn't uh, ask him to decide between. He just wants him to take his side. Tell my brother. There's no request. It's a demand. And it's a way too familiar sort of scene. No one tells you when you're preparing for ministry that you're going to sit around a table on a not infrequent basis in a funeral home or in a living room and before the bodies even in the ground you're going to hear the desires of the heart springing up out of um, people who name the name of Christ idols of the heart rising to the surface and I want you to see how Jesus deals with this, the way that he responds to this particular man. He comes, the man, making his demand, and Jesus doesn't address him directly. He doesn't speak to the issue directly. In fact, he sidesteps that presenting issue altogether, the division of the inheritance. But why? Well, Christ has higher, loftier, eternal purposes in view. He does have something timely. He does have something relevant to say, but it's not at all what you think. Jesus says to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now that must have arrested this man's attention. It it must have caught his attention. It must have been probably a point of confusion and frustration for the man because this is exactly what teachers do. Uh, This is exactly what uh, rabbis do. That's how the man addresses Jesus. He calls him teacher. This was part of their job description to, to settle disputes, to provide direction and family matters, just like this. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
In fact, he distances himself from the individual. He calls him man. That would be like saying mister. Mister, as if to say, I'm not here to give you what you're looking for. Now, brothers and sisters, the truth is that Jesus is the judge. He is the judge of all the earth. He's the one appointed by God, the Bible says, to be judge of the living and the dead. But his purpose on earth wasn't to sit as a temporal judge. It wasn't to handle disputes on temporal matters. His purpose was concerned with eternal spiritual affairs, and he wasn't going to put himself in a position where he suddenly had to become the lawyer in a family dispute. What these two brothers needed wasn't for him to sit down and take time to sort through all the facts and the background and the history of the situation. It wasn't for him to take the time to, to read the family will. That was not uh, this man's pressing need. There was something much bigger in view. What did the man really need? Well, you can see it by looking at what Jesus says in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the man has said one line. He said one sentence. And in that sentence, the Lord Jesus discerns in the heart of this man an impulse already in operation with regard to material possessions that is pointed in the wrong direction. And it's such a part of our natural condition, it's such a part of our uh, propensity as natural, uh, fallen, sinful men that he steps back and he broadens the horizon from this man alone to the so many thousands that are there. You notice that it says, and he said to them. So now he's not speaking to just the man, he's speaking to the, the crowd at large. He's speaking to us by the Spirit. So this is a warning that has application to everyone. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, how does he counsel them? Well, he looks out at this crowd and he says, money and possessions, stuff, it carries with it this this inherent temptation to regard an abundance of these things as nothing less than life. Nothing less than life. That's the contrast here between possessions on the one hand and life on the other. And in this context, we can think of life as salvation, as blessedness, as happiness, as satisfaction. This man looks at his possessions at his inheritance that he feels like is slipping through his fingers and he says in his heart that's life that's life that's what I want and so you see how behind his demand is a desire remember that behind his demand is a desire the, re- the request if we can call it that of 
Christ was just a symptom. It was just a symptom of a desire, an expression of what he most deeply believed and cherished and longed for, that life could be found in having more and more stuff, more and more possessions. And so what does that produce in a man when that desire is operating within the heart? You find covetousness. You find covetousness. Some translations say uh, every form of covetousness. That's helpful because it draws out the fact that covetousness doesn't uh, always come in the, the sorts of ways that we associate with that particular vice. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Yes, it can come in that kind of bald-faced, uh, money-grubbing lust that fantasizes day and night about how I can get richer faster, about having fatter bank accounts, the kind of covetousness that uh, dreams about ways to cheat your taxes and take advantage of others. But it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always look like the sort of uh, slithering, uh, salivating Cruella de Vil kind of character where it's so so obvious. Paul uh, talks about uh, how when the law came in and said, you shall not covet, that it, it produced in him all kinds of covetousness within his heart. He began to be able to, to identify Eve when she was in the garden. She saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desired to make one wise. So she saw, that it, she saw the goodness, she saw the beauty of what God made, but she, she forgot that it wasn't hers to have. She forgot that God had for, forbade her from having that, but she coveted it and she took it and she ate and sin came into the world. Here, you've got a man who comes to Jesus and he does so with what looks like a legitimate claim. Uh, he came with this claim to an inheritance that was rightfully his. It's an inheritance he had coming to him and he no doubt felt that he had been wronged. This wasn't right. Uh, this was, wasn't just. But behind that apparent concern over injustice was a greedy heart. It was a covetous heart. He, he didn't come uh, to Jesus because there's a break in relationship with his brother. He didn't come, uh, you know, with those principles you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul tells the church there, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That had not even begun to enter his mind and Jesus comes to lovingly uh, uncover the idols in his heart. This is always how he works. This is always how he works in our lives. He takes those surface level issues, your frustrations, your discontent, your plans, your agendas, 
Uh, The things you run to for safety and refuge, the things that make you feel secure, comfortable, the things you feel like you need, uh, what you dream about, the things you desire more than anything. And he shows us how that points to what we worship, what we fear, what we long for, what we adore, what we find beautiful. Jesus says, take care. Be on guard against all covetousness. Watch out, beloved. Watch out for this insatiable desire in your hearts for wealth. This desire that can so easily get a hold of your heart and mind to have more and more. It will never be satisfied. That's one of the things about the love of money. It will never be satisfied. If you just reflect back on your life, you can give witness to that as you think about the things that you have pursued in life. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied. Oh, that we would let those kinds of words ring in our ears. He that loves money will not be satisfied, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is one of the reasons that the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Why is money deceitful? Why does the scripture describe uh, possessions in these kinds of terms? The deceitfulness of riches is because they never deliver on what they promise. They never deliver on what they promise to you. They cry out and they say, if, I, if you could just get that raise, or if you could just get that job that that guy has, or if I could just live in that kind of house, or if I could just pay off the house that I have, or if I could drive that car, then I'd be happy. Or if I could just make it to retirement, or just wait until I get a hold of my inheritance, then I'll be happy. Then that would be living. That'd be life. Friends, it's a lie. It is a lie. This is what this man thought, that life consisted in an abundance of possessions. And Christ comes in and he flatly contravenes that idea. The motivation of a covetous heart, that life is found in having just more and more and more. He says, what you have there is a false presumption. It is a lie. It's not the kind of claim you want to stake your life upon. That is deception at work. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It is worshiping and serving the, crea- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Of this, Jesus says we must take care. We must be on guard. Now, this is so important that he underscores it with a parable. He illustrates the principle this way. He tells them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, verse 16. So here's a farmer who had had a good year. The harvest was more than he could have ever hoped for. 
And for all that we can tell, he came by that harvest honestly. It was all in a good day's work. Now, he's facing this situation where he's got an abundance that he, he hadn't anticipated and he wasn't prepared for. So what to do? What do you do when you find yourself in that kind of situation? Some of you may find yourself thinking to yourself, I wish I ever found myself in that situation. There's the deceitfulness of riches. This man says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. What do you do when you've got this bumper crop and the supply outpaces what you ever expected in the first place so much so you just don't even have a place that you can put it so he's facing this dilemma how do you respond do you give back to God do you think to yourself what do I have that I did not first receive what do I hold that God did not bless me with? How can I use this in the service of Christ's kingdom? In fact, you know, Lord, I was living just fine before this, by your sovereign hand, fell into my lap. In fact, you can look at this man and you can see he was rich before this harvest ever came, before the banner harvest was ever brought in. A certain rich man brought in this harvest. So do you say, Lord, how would you have me use this surplus that I don't even need anyway? Or how might I love my neighbor as myself with this bounty that God has so richly supplied? How can I bless those who are around me? Is it possible I could give a generous bonus to those who have labored in the fields? and who have put their hands to the, to the plow. I don't want to neglect to do good and share what I have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Is there a way I can help care for the needy and the poor? Proverbs 3 and verse 27. Do not withhold good those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Which one of these options is he going to choose? Verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Church, do you see the pattern of self-talk that Jesus exposes in this man's soul. He was preaching to himself. He was preaching to his own soul. Did you know that you preach to your soul? That you sermonize to yourself? We all do this. Every day we fill our hearts and minds with thoughts and ideas about all manner of things. We indoctrinate ourselves with beliefs and convictions and working philosophies and ideas that we regard to be true about ourselves and about God and about everything in the world. So this man begins to do that. He begins to say to himself, Saul, here's the plan. 
And he, he devises a plan. He spends time thinking about how he's going to execute the plan. There's this internal dialogue going, but, but here's the, the, the important thing. It was an internal dialogue uninterrupted by the voice of God. It's, it's a, an internal dialogue uninterrupted by the truth of the counsel of God's word. Eleven times you find the words I or my in this pattern of talk uh, Jesus reveals going on inside the man's mind. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain, my goods. You see it? You see the pattern? It was the same spirit that the Lord warned Israel about as they were preparing to enter the promised land. He said, take care, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord said, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And it's in this farmer's proposed solution that the attitude of his heart really starts to come into view. He, he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So his purpose in his dealings with this harvest is not to be rich toward God. It wasn't so that he could faithfully steward the blessing for the sake of others. In response to God's gracious provision to, to give and to give, it was all bent inward. It was all aimed at self-indulgence. His heart began to carefully calculate all the ways that he could use the resources that God had blessed him with for the sake of his own enjoyment. And he's saying to himself, just put your feet up. Live for yourself. Relax. You've earned it. You deserve it. His delight was in material things. You heard today, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your money is flowing to, there you have a solid indication of where your heart is. Do you believe that? The witness of God's word? Wherever our treasure is, that includes our money, our possessions, whatever that's flowing to, Whatever that stockpile looks like, that's a reliable indication of what you delight in. It tells you what you really value. This passage shows us what this man delighted in. It also shows us what he trusted in. His trust was in material things. What was the source of his security? He didn't entrust his life to the Lord. He entrusted his life to his possessions, to his wealth. His confidence 
was in his wealth. And the Lord brands him a fool because of it. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, brothers and sisters, just contrast the opening words of verse 19 and verse 20. The man says, I will say to my soul, but God said to him. And so you see the sermon that he is preaching to himself is not the sermon that he needs to hear. It's not truth. The man tells himself, you have ample goods. The Lord says, whose will they be? They're going to go to another. Jesus very well may be thinking of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 here, where it laments this reality. It says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, saying that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Augustine said of this man, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. The man thinks about his future. He tells himself, just relax, live it up, enjoy yourself. You have many years. What does God say? This night, your soul is required of you. You have many years. This night, the contrast, your soul is required of you. It's the language of alone. This man had forgotten that his life was on loan from the Lord who could require it of him at any moment. Here's a man who has factored in everything except God, except the Lord. He had his whole life charted out, but God wasn't there. God wasn't in it. Everything has been accounted for. Everything has been squared away. All his preparations for the future have been made except as it pertains to the soul, the undying, eternal soul that God has given each one of us. What a tragic picture this is. This is the man uh, James talks about where he, he describes this individual who fades away in the midst of his pursuits. He's running, he's running. He has his pursuits, but his life just fades away because God isn't in them. Presupposed in Christ's illustration here is the idea that life is fragile. It's uncertain. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. We don't know if the Lord will grant us a tomorrow, brothers and sisters. This farmer presumes upon a future he doesn't know whether he'll have, and he does it to the neglect of his soul. James chapter 4 and verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
That's the kind of word we need to be preaching to ourselves. If the Lord wills, we will live and do such and such. But only if he wills. And so you take the principle of verse 15 that one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And then you see this illustration of the verses that follow of a man who does not believe that. The philosophy of his life argues to the contrary that life does consist in an abundance of his possessions and then the God of heaven breaks into his life. God breaks into his life of sin and self-absorption and demands his soul, which is not prepared. It is not prepared to, make, to meet his maker. He has not done business with God. He hasn't been reconciled to the Father through the Lord Jesus. He hasn't found Christ crucified on his behalf to be the treasure of his soul. His treasure is in other things. He spent his life serving money, not God. You put this together and you find that your relationship with possessions really can imperil your soul. Covetousness can kill you. So take care. Take care, dear ones. Be on your guard. How do you take care? How shall we be on our guard? Jesus answers that as he draws out the lesson. He he makes the application for us in verse 21. Thinking of this one who builds bigger barns, he aims to spend his money on himself and, and live as if this life is the only life that will, will ever be, only to have his soul suddenly required. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So he leaves us with this, this contrast between Uh, We might describe it as generosity toward oneself and generosity toward God. Now, church, there's no inherent sinfulness in money or possessions. There's no inherent sinfulness in uh, possessing money in your bank account in the same way that there's no inherent virtue in being poor. The problem that that Christ identifies in this text and that he warns us about isn't one of financial planning or investing in the future or saving for unexpected expenses, but the orientation of the heart. The orientation of your heart. It's the same thing that Paul teaches in that passage that is so often misquoted in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now you You hear it there. Money itself isn't the root of evil. 
nor is the love of money the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And notice, church, how Paul speaks of those who desire to be rich. That's important as well. The temptation that both Paul and Jesus are warning, about, warning us about here does not just pertain to those who are rich. You don't have to be wealthy to be like the rich fool in the passage here. Those who desire to be rich plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered off. So I would ask you today, what do you desire? What do you most long for more than anything else in the world? What are you seeking today? If you had time to think about it, what would bring you the greatest pleasure in your life? Or you could ask it in, in the reverse terms. What would bring you the greatest misery? What do you most fear? Young people, as you think about uh, growing up and heading into the future, what do you want? What do you want more than anything else? What do you count as supremely valuable? What do you find yourself uh, daydreaming about? Where's the treasure of your heart? The problem in this passage is not wealth per se, but the attitude of the heart toward it and toward God. Jesus is not calling us to a life of asceticism where you you disassociate yourself from money and possessions altogether, but one where you take what he has given you and you are rich toward God. Now, what does that mean to be rich toward God? Obviously, you cannot sit here today and write a check with God's name on it. So how are God's people rich toward God? Let me read to you again from Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is him continuing in this same vein of thought after he issues the warning against the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good work, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So just briefly, brothers and sisters, notice that there is a determined refusal in his exhortation here to God's people for us to say, I will not set my hope on the uncertainty of riches. I am not going to do that. I'm not going to bank my hope on that. That's not a place that I can put my trust. And then there is a corresponding positive 
determination that I will place my hope on God. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to to enjoy. So, if our hope is on God, and he is one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, which he does, with that blessed confidence and assurance in place, we are free. We are free to do good. I am now free to loose my grip on earthly treasures, to let go of earthly things. I can, by God's grace and with his help, incline the posture of my heart toward generosity, a readiness to give, to let go, to be rich in love, rich in good works, rich toward the kingdom of God, knowing, as Christ says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it's in doing that, it's in letting go of my love of money and my lust for more and more possessions, it's in abandoning my hold on the uncertainty of riches that, what does Paul say? I can take hold of that which is truly life. I can possess the kind of life that says Jesus is the treasure of my heart. He is where life is truly found. So God, we pray that you would come and that you would help us in this. Gracious, gracious Father, Lord, we acknowledge your kindness to us, the riches of your provision. God, we thank you for every heavenly blessing first and foremost that we find in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, we thank you for how you demonstrate your love and your care for us as your people. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to find more and more you and your son to be the treasure of our hearts. That we would find our joy not in earthly treasure, but in Christ and knowing him. Work in our hearts, Lord. God, I, I pray that you would keep us from the love of money. Lord, that we would learn to be content with what we have, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people, uh, the kind of church where we hold loosely our material possessions. God, where we take delight in, in every opportunity that you give to us to be rich toward you. Lord, I pray that the way that we handle our our money and our possessions would serve to make Christ to be seen as our ultimate treasure and delight, that he would be lifted up in all his beauty and worth. 
We ask this in his name. Amen.